Hello, my name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the most famous Japanese film director of all time, Ishiro Honda. No, I'm just kidding. We're talking about the beat famous Takeshi. one. Yeah, Beat Takeshi. Yeah. Uh, what other directors? Kinji Fukasaku. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Sonny Chiba. We know our guys. You know... Japanese films are kind of the kryptonite of this podcast. If there's any popular kind of output of a country in the world that we haven't talked about, it's Japanese. Well, we have tried it occasionally. Yes. With with mixed results, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, today we're talking about... Yasujiro Ozu. And he's the great, like, beside Kurosawa. When we talk about Japanese cinema, it's usually these two guys. Mm-hmm. And is he a filmmaker that you had explored a lot? Uh, no. And in mm. fact, he's somebody who has sort of only opened up for me recently. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school reading, I think Roger Ebert say something along the lines of, and sooner or later, all cinephiles get to Ozu and they walk with giants or, you know, some, some poetic statement like that. And so I thought, I filed that in my head as like, oh, okay, to be a real cinephile, you gotta love Ozu. <laughs> and so I think I, I rented Good Morning mm-hmm. as a teenager. And I remember thinking, uh, okay. And then... In first year film studies class, they showed us Tokyo Story. Yes. Of course. What a terrible place to watch that movie. One of the great movies of all time. Watched at nine o'clock in the morning with a crowd of your fellow Philistines. (laughs) Bored, probably going on their laptops, checking websites. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you ever saw a movie at Innes Town Hall at U of T, but that was back in the days where if anybody opened a door, it would cast light all (laughs) over the screen, which happened 50 times in a movie. (laughs) Yep. Terrible experience. So I I was very bored as a teenager watching it. I don't think I ever got into him in my cinephilia, but Ozu is one of those directors that when you read about him, you feel like you're like, oh, okay, I I get what he does. Mm -hmm. Because his stuff is so formal and specific and repetitious in its themes and its stylistic conceits, when you read about him in like the great tomes by Donald Ritchie or by uh, David Bordwell or the transcendental cinema by Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. like it's very clear what his intentions are. But like a lot of great classic filmmakers that we've talked about, you know, you actually have to experience the films to get the effect that people react to. Well, because if you've seen a few of his movies, you know that he keeps returning to the same topic over and over again, which mm-hmm. is the family and its dissolution. And you know that he has the same style in every movie. And you know that his movies even sound similar. They have similar titles, you know, Late Spring, An Autumn Afternoon, Mm. Early Summer. Wait, is this the remake of that film or is it the original version? It's very easy to get them confused. Floating Weeds or the story of the Floating Weeds, (laughs) you know? So yeah, I think it's easy to maybe take Ozu for granted mm-hmm. or, or say, oh, okay, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put myself through the experience. I, I, I get it. I've seen one. I've seen them all. But I don't know. That said, uh, whenever I do watch an Ozu movie. Love it. I mean, what, what always happens is I spend 70 minutes like nodding my head being mm-hmm. like, okay, okay, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? And then at the 70 minute mark, it's like it hits me in the face and but, I'm like a blubbering mess. But you don't even reach the fireworks factory either because yeah. like, Ozu is all about the elliptical nature of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, they're setting up a big wedding. A big wedding's coming. Mm-hmm. The next scene, the wedding has already passed mm-hmm. and things have moved on from there. And it's that absence that creates the impact. It's kind of like his formal style exists because when he deviates from that style a little bit, yeah. that hits like a thunderbolt to viewers. And what is that style? Because if you've ever been to a first year film studies class, 
<laughs> you probably know the general contours of it. His style is rigorous and minimalist and very consistent, and he didn't give himself any wiggle room outside of it. And he created his own film grammar that is unlike anybody else. So oftentimes the camera would be very low placed. Typically, when you're watching a movie, the camera is to people's eye levels, but his, it's like the cameraman is on his knees. He also loves to have characters actually kind of like talk into the camera Mm -hmm. he never does over the shoulders connecting both people in a shot and typically in dialogue scenes in movies if there's a conversation there will be more cross-cutting like it may cut to somebody in the middle of somebody else talking but no it's like you see somebody talk and then it cuts to somebody else talk also mr ozu don't you know you're crossing the line oh yeah this is it (laughs) he he always violates the 180 degree line this is the one fact (laughs) that everybody everybody knows (laughs) and What's interesting about Ozu is that when you read about his history and where he came from, like, he didn't arrive fully formed making these kind of films. It took him a while to get there, and he made a lot of pictures during the silent era just trying to find his style. His film career started in 1923 when he was, I think, 20 years old or so. Mm. And he joined the Shochiku Company, which was one of the big Japanese film companies, working as an assistant cameraman. Four years later, he made his first uh, directorial film. And a lot of his early films, uh, you know, he had a whole series of college films, light comedies. I graduated, but I flunked, but... People said that he made movies in, like, the Harold Lloyd mode, Uh in the sense that it's, like, like you said, very light comedies, usually around one figure. I did, in fact, see a clip from one of his movies where there's a woman standing in front of a poster for Speedy, uh, which is like in Evil Dead when there's the torn up Jaws (laughs) poster. Ozu's like, Uh, I'm going to show Lloyd that I can do better than him. uh, But he also made crime films like Dragnet Girl. Sometimes they dig those out and they're, and you know, they're sort of Wow, Ozu made this? In the retrospective? That's what they're always positioned as look at the camera move (laughs) because of course later on in his mature period another one of his stylistic trademarks is that the camera never moved Mm. lockdown and you know there are only a few locations in ozu's mature period there's you got the home and sometimes you got work sometimes you got school and sometimes you got the bar yeah that's it (laughs) yeah i would say 80 percent of his movies take place at home and the homes are those very traditional looking japanese houses um, and he always frames it, you know, through doorways and and uh, pe- peeking through windows and walls with heavy geometric shapes, lines. Well, Ozu is all about that repetition and that ritualism in his filmmaking style. And that's because it's an extension of the Japanese society that he likes to portray. This ritualistic, everyone goes through their paces and the drama comes when there's, again, a deviation from those norms. So yeah, not just the consistent visual style, but also the consistent themes that he keeps uh, coming back to. It's, yes, the family unit and its dissolution, but also kind of the march of progress, the march of time, a progress in quotation marks here, because he views progress, I think, with suspicion. Mm -hmm. You know, the family is very important to him because it represents tradition. And of course, it represents tradition to Japanese society as well. This is why, like, his movies didn't get exported until long after... 1962, I think, was like the first time his movies hit North American soil. I, I actually think it was, it might have been 72. 72? Like, a, like a, full, a full decade after his death. Hmm. Because, and a lot of that was because of the advocacy of Donald Ritchie. Yes. Donald Ritchie, for people that don't know, is the king of bringing Japanese cinema to English-speaking uh, places. Yeah. He's the one who wrote, like, the text on Japanese cinema. Mm-hmm. He's the one that kind of 
I don't want to say excavated, but just transported Japanese cinema and said, like, this is why it's important. This is why it's different from American cinema. And this is why it should be more culturally known. And the Ozu movies were never exported because these themes of family and tradition were seen as too Japanese. You know, the Japanese, according to Richie, people in the Japanese film industry regarded Ozu as if not the most popular filmmaker, then the official filmmaker. He's like the chronicler of what Japan is. And the reason that Kurosawa's film kind of crossed over is because Kurosawa is making like entertainment. Like sure. he's, when people would talk about Kurosawa, they would often talk about him in terms of like the blockbuster art director. Actually, that's what I think I named the episode a hundred episodes ago. <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. Don't listen to that one. I'm... <laughs> oh boy, I'm sure it's terrible. Uh, and yeah, Kurosawa is also very cosmopolitan and very influenced by, you know, foreign filmmakers of uh, john ford of course but ozu said that like he was also influenced by um, american cinema and he loved american cinema citing that citizen kane actually made mm. quite an impact on him mm. and what's interesting is that he didn't translate that into just a mirror image to his inspirations mm-hmm. but he kind of synthesized them into something that represented his milieu and what he thought was important in japanese society now, we both watched Late Spring this week, which is another one of those movies where, yeah, for 90 minutes, it's like, okay, okay, mm-hmm. a detail accumulating. And then sometime around the end, huge punch in the gut. You know, the thing about Late Spring is, like, I was suspicious of it through most of it because it's the idea of them being like, she needs to marry, she needs to marry, she needs to marry. The story is about a woman in her late 20s who's taking care of her father. Their mother is out of the picture. She's He's a widow. Widower. Yeah. Yeah. And that she's uncomfortable with the idea of getting married and leaving her father alone to take care of himself. Mm-hmm. That is the principal reason why she hasn't gone and explored and started her own life. But what becomes clearer is that actually she loves living with her father. Mm-hmm. They have a wonderful relationship together. The, their family unit is very strong. But the father understands, okay, well, it's it's time. This can't last forever. It's lasted too long already. She really ought to go start her own life. And in fact, I'm now going to get married too to try to to try to hasten the dissolution. I don't want to spoil the shock ending, <laughs> but there, there may be a little bit of a subterfuge going on here. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I was like, I don't like this, is the fact that they're like, we should get them together so they should get married. Yeah. Like, this needs to happen. And it all builds up to a really devastating scene where she's about to get married and she tells her father, I don't want to get married. It's frankly not possible for me to be happier than I am right now. Mm-hmm. Why does this have to change? And then as, as he lays it out, happiness isn't something that is given to you on a silver platter. Happiness is something that you'll have to work towards. You may not be immediately happy, but maybe after a year, maybe after 10 years, you will be happy in this new life and you can't live with me forever, etc. And I'd be curious to know how you feel about that because I think it's open to interpretation because I actually think he might be right. I think that he is right. And I, the thing that like, like I was saying that made me suspicious for a long time was the fact that the film seems to position at first that she's being forced because this is what's culturally accepted into this marriage. Like it's seeming, it's an arranged marriage yeah. where two people are for, and that I don't like. And the idea that like, she's a, she's a spinster woman. Yeah. And there's nothing at the age less of 27. Valuable. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I mean, some of this has to do with just like time and place that it was being the made. time and place, but also like there's definitely you know that that still has not gone away. There's I think <laughs> I think I think people still feel that particularly in in certain communities. Well, it's the idea as well of you may be happy where you are, mm-hmm. but at a certain point you need to go and explore different things. You need different flavors of happiness. I mean, to use a very crude analogy, like, you can't eat pizza every day. You love pizza, and, you know, it's not technically that bad for you, but eventually there's an accumulation that will happen, and that you need different stuff to have, you know, the entire rainbow of experiences. It's interesting that he was regarded as just too colloquial, too Japanese to export, because... I, these feelings are very universal. Mm-hmm. I think we've all had the experience in, to some extent, if not exactly this experience, but some experience of having to move on, even though you don't quite want to. It's the definition of getting stuck in a rut, right? Yeah. Which is like, you could be happy and you feel every day you're kind of going on. Why would I change things? There's nothing bad happening. And the change is hard. It is. It's always very Because it's also going to probably be miserable at the beginning. Like, it's not going to go from happiness to a different kind of happiness. There's going to be a shift. And I mean, Ozu, the way that he kind of builds to that moment is amazing because he has a character played by Setsuko Hara be happy throughout the movie. She's smiling. Mm. She's, like, joking. And... You wonder, like, well, if she's happy in this situation, why change it? And it's like, because you have to. Yeah. Like, this can't last, and it will only calcify over time. Mm-hmm. And that without discovering these experiences, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that the film does build to that moment in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. His most famous film, of course, is 1953's Tokyo Story, uh, which I believe on the Sight and Sound poll in 2012 was voted by the directors as the best movie of all time. Yeah. Uh, a little what bit, a bummer. A little bit of trivia <laughs> there for you. And uh, and actually, speaking of his influences from the West, this one is heavily influenced by Make Way for Tomorrow. I love Make Way uh, for Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do not like that director. Woo boy. Leo McCary? Yeah, crazy Republican. Oh, yeah. Well, I run hot and cold on Leo McCary. He made <laughs> Duck Soup. He did. And um, The Awful Truth, that's a fun one. Yeah, there's good stuff in there. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was funny that I I found a quote by Ozu where he referred to Tokyo Story as one of his most melodramatic pictures, Hmm. Uh, I guess because it has a death in it, but uh, (laughs) really, really not at all. And maybe because the emotional undercurrent is always on the like floating on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Well, this film is about an elderly couple who travel from their small rural town in Japan to Tokyo to visit their grown children. Uh, The grown children include uh, a community doctor, hairdresser. There's also a woman who was married to their son who died in the war. And she has essentially become like their honorary daughter. And she's the only child who treats them with any respect. Yes. But it's not like the others don't respect them exactly. It's just they're busy. They have grandkids or they have kids. The old people have grandkids and they have jobs. They have stuff they have to do. Frankly, having these two old people at their home is a bit of a bummer. Mm -hmm. And so what do they do? They say, hey, maybe let's send these old people off to a spa for the weekend. The old people take the hint. They decide to go back home. And uh, unfortunately, on the way back home, mother falls ill. Uh, spoiler warning, I guess. <laughs> Can Why you spoil these now? movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the movies end exactly how you think they're going to yeah, end. Yeah, there's no big surprises to any Ozu films. He's not like, um, one of them was a werewolf the entire time. Well, wouldn't that be wonderful if it was? <laughs> uh, but she she's convalescing. The, the children 
come home. The mother dies. The children are, of course, very sad and upset about it. The children even say, maybe we should have given her a little bit more time. But the next day, they have to go back to Tokyo. Father's left on his own. The father tells the widowed uh, daughter-in-law, don't worry about us. You should go get married. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is basically left there to look at the sunset and contemplate life and die, basically. And one of the things that's interesting about the movie is that, you know, there are no uncomplicated emotions in it, you know? It never, like, I mean, one way to read it, and I've read people say this, is like, ah, the kids could have spent more time with their parents. Why don't they just give them a little bit more time? But it's like, yeah, life is like that, right? Like, yeah. maybe it was just like this particular weekend. Or it just didn't work out for them. Well, there's a really heartbreaking scene where one of the kids is talking to the mother and the mother says, oh, yeah, I probably won't be back out to Tokyo. You know, I know you're very busy. You know, if you can, if you if you're able to come out to my town, I forget what the town's called, uh, by all means. And the daughter says, oh, thank you. But it's very far. And then, you know, they part. And I don't know, that scene was like a punch in the face. But there's no huge confrontation. Mm -hmm. And on some level... Like it's true, it is far. Yeah, you know, it's hard when you're have a career. Well, you visit your family every few weeks, so you'll never have a Tokyo Story situation. I think my my parents would disagree with that. <laughs> really, that they should speak to my parents. Maybe it'll make them feel a little bit better. <laughs> Uh, I, I would say that for many reasons, this movie hit me very hard. Oh, it did? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because it is a film that is classic and it's one of those perfect objects. And it's never one I want to reach over on a shelf and watch because... Well, because it is it is boring at yeah, times. Yeah, but, it, but it's also like you said, when you get into an Ozu film, you know what an Ozu film is. There, mm. There's no qualms about where his story is going or the emotions he's going to play on at the end. And it's interesting that I'd be like, I don't want to reach for it. When I'll reach for things that are much more flightier entertainment that I still know how those will probably end as well. I think like part of the, you know, secret to appreciating Ozu is to appreciate just like being in his world Mm -hmm. and, and living there for a while. Like he loves quotidian details. He loves objects. Uh, I know Roger Ebert has written extensively about like teacups in his movies. And if you enjoy looking at, you know, the seaside with Mm -hmm. Ozu, if you enjoy being there on a hot day in Floating Weeds with Ozu. You know, I think that Floating Weeds was probably my favorite Ozu film Mm. that I've seen. And I think it's because it's the one that I think successfully hits that mark of like, not only is there a bunch of stuff going on, not only are there a lot of complicated emotions, but where it builds to is, like you say, say about the other ones, emotionally satisfying in a way that... I don't know if it's lighter than his other pictures. Well, I mean, compared to Tokyo Story, where Tokyo Story never has, like, an explosion. Yeah, I mean, Floating Weeds does. Floating Weeds does, mm-hmm. yeah. And and Floating Weeds has a central character who's very difficult. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, what's Floating? Because you watched that one as well, right? I, I did. That's uh, a story about this theater troupe who travel around Japan, and they come to this seaside town where uh, the, ma- the main actor in the theater troupe long ago had an affair with a woman that pr- produced a child the child who's now almost fully grown he's you know late teenagers you know the actor has always visited the family but this child has always thought it was his uncle and he's back in the town and he's really starting to reconnect with this old mistress of his which causes problems in his relationship with his current mistress and also problems with the theatrical troupe who are not making enough money to be able to continue to the next town yeah and so you have all of these things kind of spinning 
around each other and it's all the ozuness that ever ozued but this time in color that's right and uh yeah. this time there's almost a more comedic bent that you see in his earlier films that's mm-hmm. present in floating weeds mm-hmm. that is not always i mean it's definitely not there in tokyo story and in late spring it's kind of bubbling on the surface mm-hmm. but it's not as you know the word i'm looking for is fun as it is in floating weeds <laughs> sure fair enough because, like, if I was going to recommend somebody, like, oh, you want to check out Ozu, I would say check out Floating Weeds. I mean, the thing mm-hmm. is that all of his movies are all variations on each other in mm-hmm. that last period. The last 13 pictures, I mm-hmm. believe, mm-hmm. are all essentially, like, the same template. Mm-hmm. So once you see one, then you can go exploring variations of that. Yeah, it would definitely, I definitely think, like, Floating Weeds may be probably the most accessible one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is in color and, and, yes. in, and in beautiful color. And I don't even you know, mean like stylized color. And I don't mean it in the in the sense of like ah, finally color. Like <laughs> it looks like real life. But like you said, it is stylized. Yeah. And he is doing some stuff that is not always present in his yeah. other films, almost as an entry point to people. Yeah. It's it's a little bit more. The emotions are heavier, mm-hmm. so it it plays a little bit more like I don't want to say a normal movie. <laughs> normal movie. <laughs> well, you know, Ozu could be compared to like British kitchen sink dramas, mm. but where Ozu. The difference is, as well as it is about the everyday details, kitchen sink dramas have a tendency, like you said, of like simmering to um, secrets and lies at the end. And Ozu, other than maybe something like Floating Weeds, always keeps it under the surface. And I understand why that is an attraction to people who want cinema that speak to them in a way that doesn't Mm -hmm. reflect the like, oh, it's like everything else I see. And, you know, another one that I might recommend to beginners is Good Morning, Mm -hmm. uh, which is which is a very sort of light and charming one. And I I said that Ozu has opened up for me more in recent years. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with getting older. Uh, I'm as young as I ever was. Well, inside, mentally, I'm I'm as young as I ever was. But, you know, my my aching knee that's been giving me troubles (laughs) would say otherwise. And uh, I've lived long enough now to see, you know, the places that I live dramatically change. Mm -hmm. I've lived long enough to see everyone I know age by 30 years. <laughs> I've lived long enough to see my, Jerry Lewis died. Jerry Lewis died. Yeah. <laughs> my God. I, you know, my relationship with everybody I know has evolved mm-hmm. in my lifespan. You know, I think that's a reason why I and probably most teenagers would not gravitate towards Ozu. Yeah, because you want to live in the now where everything seems present. And in Good Morning, uh, you can see him visualize this post-war society where there's the community, there's the neighborhood where the Japanese houses are done in the traditional style and surrounding them are these sort of industrial areas. Everybody has this new consumer culture, you know, TVs and dishwashers and vacuum cleaners and stuff like that. These these sort of encroachments on the old way. And Ozu is smart enough to not make it make that seem like an unambiguously bad thing. Like no emotions are uncomplicated in his films, but if you see communities that you love and people that you love get older or be steamrolled by progress, that can be a bittersweet or difficult thing. Should I watch Good Morning or another film that starts with G that's Japanese and touches on all these bases? Godzilla's Revenge. <laughs> I say, why watch them both. both. <laughs> yeah. have, have, have your vegetables, then have a little dessert. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So that was our episode on Ozu, and now we have a very special announcement. Oh, this one's been a long time coming, folks. So uh, people know that we love physical media. Mm. We also love public domain films. What if we put both of them together? 
Folks, when you were growing up, did you ever go to your local gas station, your local Walmart, and there'd be a little rack of public domain DVDs, stuff Ooh. stuff that the store bought in bulk? Whoa, Master with Cracked Fingers starring Jackie Chan. I've never heard of this one before. What's this movie starring Jack Nicholson called The Little Shop of Horrors? Is that the same <laughs> as the Rick Moranis movie? Yep. Ooh, Night of the Living Dead. Five different copies of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, we grew up on public domain DVD labels, mm-hmm. and we've always dreamed of having our own. And... We thought, how would we approach this? Because we cannot do new scans of movies. It is not within our budget. (laughs) And the films that we want to put out, you know, sometimes they benefit from being watched in that public domain way. So here's, here's the thought. What if you saw a movie the way it was meant to be seen on a shitty public domain DVD transfer, pan and scan, beautiful, glorious 1.33 to 1? Yep. But what if you got that DVD loaded with contextual extras? The criterion of public domain DVD labels. And we're calling it the Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics. And our first release is going to be a little film called The Dragon Lives Again. Oh, wait, you mean the film in which Bruce Lee goes to hell and fights James Bond, Dracula, The Exorcist, The Godfather, and Emmanuel, and teams up with Popeye the Sailor? The same one! Oh, man. So me and Will have been working on this uh, Blu-ray, and we went all out on it. We recorded an introduction to the disc. We did, I think, the best commentary we've ever done together. We've done a feature-length commentary, probably the first ever recorded, on The Dragon Lives Again. (laughs) That's right. Full of facts and info and analysis. We did a 20-minute discussion of our favorite Bruce Bloitation films, and I also cut together a 70-minute trailer reel of just Bruce Bloitation films. I mean, that's worth the price of admission yeah. on its own. I even went in and added the name and the year of the film as each trailer appears, just so you don't have to be like, oh, wait, is it under a different title? I don't know. You can find them very easily. Yeah, you'll see highlights from your favorite films by Bruce Lai, Bruce Lai, Dragon Lee. Yep. Probably you'll even see pictures of Bruce Lee himself. And we also have a very special feature. And hopefully, as we make more of these, this will be a regular thing, is that we have a bonus feature. It is the Aquarius-releasing classic Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, starring Fred Williamson, (laughs) Ron Van Cleef, Adolph Caesar, Bill Louie, and... Bruce Lee. Technically. (laughs) This is a film where they took, for, for about a third of it, they took a childhood film that Bruce Lee was in and dubbed it What's Up Tiger Lily style. Yeah, but they also have an Academy Award nominated um, actor interviewing Bruce Lee in the film. Do they? (laughs) Fist of Fear, Touch of Death is a notorious film, a film that, uh, you know, some would say pisses on Bruce Lee's grave. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I I like it. And we recorded an introduction to it. Mm -hmm. And the Blu-ray also contains liner notes with uh, contextualizing essays about the films. And an interview with the director of Fist of Fear, Touch of Death that you did. That's right. (laughs) In the liner notes. The liner notes are like the maximum that you can have in a Blu-ray case. So it's like a thick little booklet. And as an extra bonus, you know, I may say limited to the first 50 because I don't know if I'll make more, but Will, years ago, bought lobby cards for uh, The Dragon Lives Again, full-sized ones, and we photographed them, I color-corrected them, and in the cases, full color, you'll have a, a lobby card of that movie just for yourself, which I don't think I've seen them on the internet either. So they probably didn't get scanned or anything like that. So folks, the first installment of Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics, The Dragon Lives Again, 
they'll be individually numbered and they'll be available. Where will they be available? You can get them at goldninjavideo.com. Gold Ninja Video? Gold Ninja Video.com. And it'll be limited to 125. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll see like... I'm probably going to have to write the number on each disc that goes out. Hand numbered. Buy The Dragon Lives Again. As of this recording, it'll be 10 bucks, <laughs> so, which is... That's bargain bin price. Yeah, it is, with all the stuff that you get. Remember, you're paying for the extras. <laughs> yeah, you are. You, I, I did my best with the video. Um, Fist of Fear, Touch of Death is actually in widescreen. Oh, yeah, we do have a widescreen presentation of Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. And The Dragon Lives Again, the opening credits are in widescreen, and I went in and I fixed the copy that I have, but the rest is cropped full screen. I mean, one of the appeals of The Dragon Lives Again in full screen is it really does look like you're looking in a portal to hell. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> do we have any letters this week? Yes, we do. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Nikolai Fugate, and it goes, Justin and Will, over the last few months, I've been listening to the podcast, and now I have only 20 or so episodes left. Thank you for your service. I came upon the podcast from the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie one, and was also surprised to recognize Will Voice as the guy who had done a guest episode on the Talking Simpsons podcast. <laughs> I've greatly enjoyed the podcast through at First, I went through all the episodes of the subject matter I was familiar with, but the true test has been how much I've enjoyed the ones I have little experience with, and when your discussion makes me want to seek out the movie. Detour being the best example. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I gotta re-listen to that Detour episode. What did we say? I guess we were just like... I think it became a running gag on the show, too. Yeah. Outside of simple praise for the podcast, and we always love that, although much deserved, I wanted to get your opinions on the love it or hate it phenomenon that has seemed to infect discussions of movies and other media more and more as I've grown older. So often when I see a movie now and afterwards discuss it with someone and say, I liked it and it was okay, or criticize something in a movie that I otherwise enjoyed, I have found the person reacting as if I hated it. It seems that for many people, the only valid feelings are pure love or hate. When I said I thought The Last Jedi was okay, I was lumped in by several friends as one of those people hating it, even though my criticisms were not the same as the mob online. I think it was a solid B or B minus. I've come to see this behavior as a symptom of so many people incorporate movies and other media directly into their personalities, take personal offense when someone does not share their opinion. I don't know if it is also a byproduct of getting older, as when I was a kid, so many things were love it or hate it because my pool of comparisons was so shallow. Just curious for your opinions on this. Finally, as much as I enjoy the important cinema club, I must say I truly miss loose cannons and hope for its eventual return someday. You were getting to the good stuff. Nick Fugate. Okay. Thank you for um, telling me how to pronounce your name at the end. Yeah, you were getting into the good stuff. Matthew moved away. Like, yeah. that's, that's literally the reason we stopped doing the podcast. Well, maybe he'll be back one day. One day, yeah. Come back from his glitzy L.A. life to um, us plebs in Toronto. So uh, a few points about uh, what Nikolai said. I mean, we do sort of define ourselves by the things that we like. And mm -hmm. so it's, you know, easier than you would think probably to take it personally when people don't like a movie. And, you know, something that I've that I've noticed from criticizing uh, Marvel movies and look, I'm a hero. <laughs> I know it's the bravest thing in the world to criticize yes. Marvel. But sometimes if, if you say that you're wary of the Disney company or, mm. or their business model, Ugh. Um, sometimes people will say something like, yeah, okay, well, am I really destroying cinema if I like Marvel movies? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is no, of course not. Like, no. I, don't, I don't give a shit if you yeah. like, if you like Marvel movies, great. You know, life is short. Uh, individual consumers mm. enjoying something has nothing to do with whether you think of bu uh, the business itself 
you know. Yeah, I mean, but if you write that on Twitter, oh boy, will they come defending it? <laughs> yeah, so so people, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is me saying, like, I enjoy very much watching Marvel movies, and I've said this before, but the people online defending it like it's a representation of their identity scares the shit out of me. Well, it scares me, too, because you can imagine how an unscrupulous corporation can use this. <laughs> yes, you know? of course. If they can, because people talk about the fans as if it's an identity group. Like, I was yeah. talking recently about about, or this was actually months ago, I posted like, oh, you know, Disney owns Fox now and they're going to not allow theatrical distribution. And people came at me yeah. as if like, how dare you say Disney would do something that they have done throughout their entire career. And now they're doing it. They're doing they're it. They're doing it, yeah. yeah. And, you know, this sucks too because if you criticize Disney or Marvel, people will say, well, okay, just, just let people like what they like, mm-hmm. which is fine until... Um, now I can't see any Fox movies in repertory cinemas anymore. So now I can't like what I like. Yep, that's right. It's actively harming my ability to like what I like. And, you know, they'll come after you. And if that thing proves to be true, you, you, you'll never get, I mean, it wouldn't make you feel uh-huh. any better. But like, oh, I'm going to have to rethink the way that I think they'll go. Oh, yeah, OK, push it aside <laughs> and just jump on the next argument. I mean, you know, as someone, if I recommend something to someone and they don't like it, it does kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. I guess. I mean, we've all had that experience of like mm. showing something that you like to somebody and yeah. not reacting to it the way you want them and to. I mean it's twofold because it's you can't know that person you don't know how they're going to react to it but it's also you could view it as like oh I guess you don't like the things that I like and, and do you not like me <laughs> yeah you know? I don't think I think that way <laughs> but because if you know it's funny that I do like all this weird stuff but I may be the most conservative recommender of like anyone that uh-huh. I know is that like like we, I have pals that they'll recommend things and I'll be standing beside them and I'm like, what? Like, they're not going to like that. And then that person will not like that. And it's like, why? (laughs) And there's something... There have been many times when we've been talking and you'll say like, oh, you're not going to like it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'll be like, oh, I really like it. I'm like, but you you won't. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know what? Justin probably knows my taste better than anybody. Why not? (laughs) And and Will will sometimes be like, oh, I will watch it. I didn't like it. (laughs) It's like, yeah, that's right. And I think it's, it's, you know... I don't think it's something I pride myself on, but I think that I hope that if I recommend something to people at this point mm-hmm. and if they don't like it, I'm like, oh, I guess I, I, I don't know you as well as I thought I did. Yeah. I, another thing is, as as far as the whole love it or hate it thing goes, you see it online a lot where media companies are driven by clicks mm-hmm. and an ambivalent review doesn't get a click in the same way that have you seen vice will often post articles like does gremlins 2 actually suck yeah or does robocop actually suck well, and when you click on the article it's like oh no it doesn't suck like this person likes it but that the framing is and i know people are like ah the de-evolution of the critical discussion online and it's just that if they wrote long pauline kale like essays <laughs> no one would friggin' read them. That's the issue. It, that's why people, like, start usually from that base and then write something else. It's because they want that click. It's called clickbait for a reason. You know, people said, ah, where did the the um, the critical uh, conversation of Pauline Kael go? Uh, probably in some zine you're not reading. <laughs> like, Pauline Kael was able to reach such a wide audience because she was one of the few voices in that sphere. That's right, yeah. And now that doesn't really exist because people want stuff that's fast and they want it now because there's so many other options. Why would I read this 10,000 word essay when I can get Uh, it in 50 words? I do think that if Polly and Kale were still alive, she might still be able to thrive because she'd be writing, yeah. I mean, because she's actually good. Like, there are a lot of people who write, okay, I know that we have issues with her, but. Well, and she's also a bit of a troll. 
Yeah. So she would get those clicks because even at that time, you know, people would say that she would actually wait until other critical responses came in before she then wrote her essay. Armand White does that. Yes, he does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's very much like the Ernst Lubitsch films, Jack and Jill. Do you remember that Armand White actually liked The Hurt Locker Mm. until it came out and then all of a sudden... I did not know that. Then all of a sudden he didn't like it anymore. (laughs) And I think that, like, even as human beings, I think we're wired that when somebody is like, well, I don't like this, you're like, oh, I gotta write a response. This is when, like... Self-control. Yeah. (laughs) Like, where you have to be, you know what? They don't like it. Doesn't affect me. That's right. I still like it. That's right. And that is a hard, like, feeling to fight sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to go into it. But then you just got to take a step back and be like, but what will it get me? Am I going to convince this person? What what I tell myself is, you know, I am Toronto's most influential cinephile. (laughs) I have two podcasts. You don't tell yourself that. You just write it on Twitter. Everyone knows me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm hoping it becomes a self-perpetuating. Like, like by saying it, it becomes true. You know, because if we're going to be honest here, Will's tweets drive me crazy. I know they do. (laughs) Yeah, and I've told him this. (laughs) And the lesson that I learned is that, like, I cannot, like, respond to them. (laughs) Just, if you mute me, it's okay. <laughs> yep. I don't take it personally. And it, I like your tweets. Yeah, you like my tweets all the time. Yeah. I, I like some of your tweets, yeah. but like the lesson I learned was like, I can't, what am I going to get from responding to Will? Maybe I'll make him feel bad, but that's not the intent that that original tweet that he had was for. You know what the thing is? You know I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I do know you're a nice guy. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, you just hate that side of me and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but you know what? Other people... Like my brother, love that side <laughs> oh, of you. Yeah, sounds like a great guy. <laughs> exactly. So you know, if something's not for me, people are so defensive because there's so much stuff that they feel they need to hold on to something yeah. and defend it just to make it have value. Mm-hmm. But it, the other side of the coin is there's so much stuff, so it doesn't really matter if you like it, you like it. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't really help you if your friend is like, Ugh, "Why do you hate this movie?" You know what? Don't be friends with them. That's right. <laughs> Easy solution. Live alone. <laughs> yeah, in a shed mm-hmm. with your two best friends, the important cinema club. <laughs> That's right. Pretend to be the third person in the room. <laughs> All right. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we will finally be looking at another legendary director, another director who uh, it's uh, surprising we haven't got to earlier. <laughs> Any time that I write, huh, which women director should helm this franchise? What's the name that comes up? Catherine Bigelow. Yep. Uh, Catherine Bigelow is one we probably haven't tackled because, like, she was in the conversations for so long. Yeah. To a ridiculous degree. To the degree that you're like, why would she have any interest in this, like, movie that you think she should be involved with other than the fact that she's a woman? But she's had a very interesting career. So I think we'll probably be watching Point Break. And uh, I'll probably be checking out, like, Blue Steel or Near Dark, all those early 80s films that kind of define the 80s and the 90s and will said like yeah we'll watch uh, near dark and uh point break and i was like will you gotta watch one of her later period films and, and i'm like, like i don't want but you know what the hurt locker that was the film that kind of brought her back nobody thought it was going to be the hit that it was and i think it'll be interesting to revisit it see the movie that gave jeremy renner the box office career that he had yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, Hurt Locker, I remember it being entertaining. Let's mm-hmm. check it out. All right, so that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. 
So when I was sitting uh, watching a certain film that I saw in 70 millimeter uh, recently that I will not name it because the discourse. No more. No, no more. more. Anything but that. Um, I saw the trailer for The Joker on the big screen. I was over the moon watching a trailer for a Joker on 70 millimeter film. And it, and it ended with see it on 70 millimeter. And I laughed so hard <laughs> when I saw that. And then I stopped laughing because I knew I was the clown because they had gotten me. I was going to see the Joker in 70 millimeter. It said, see it on 70 millimeter. And I said, thank you. I think I will. In fact, because as bad as it looks, how often you get a chance to see a movie on 70 millimeter. Wait, what do you mean? How bad as it looks? Will, aren't you ready to finally have those superhero films that are clogging the box office deconstructed in a gritty real way? Right. You know, pow, bam, comic books are not just for kids anymore. Yep. I'm getting like friggin' Deja that's stretching like a million miles away. What if the Joker were not fun? Yes. What if it were the story of an unpleasant incel? Wait, is the Joker not fun? Isn't that every film appearance that he's had? <laughs> this one, of course, is visibly indebted to the work of executive producer Martin Scorsese. Ugh. And I see the trailer for Joker and I sort of think, okay, you know, I already have Taxi Driver. I already have King of Comedy. Why would I want to watch a shitty version of those? And it's not even like, um, oh, wow, we're drawing inspiration. It looks like a fan film. There's even like a yeah. garbage strike going on. And, and it just seems a little depressing. It's like, oh, okay, uh, you're not ready for King of Comedy? Well, here you can watch it with the Joker in it. <laughs> oh, huh? but the King of Comedy is in it as well because Robert De Niro is appearing. That's I right. I mean, to get excited about the Joker, and this happens all the time, and I feel so bad for news, like especially film news websites, have to write like articles about trailers being like, oh, what do you think? Maybe they could pull it out. And it's like, no, I've seen that director's films. They are not good. Why do I think that this one will be? Well, I know that it has been programmed already at two prominent fall <laughs> festivals, Venice in the official competition, and of course a TIFF gala where um, you know various boards of directors will be at Roy Thompson Hall watching it. It, <laughs> um, it stands shoulder to shoulder with, um, what is that, Max Landis film that starred um, Sam Rockwell? <laughs> <laughs> also a TIFF gala um, premiere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Again, we're going to see the movie. So us discussing it being like, oh, wow, it's, it looks so bad. <laughs> Why would they make it? I do, One, please. <laughs> I do like Joaquin Phoenix. And it, I love Joaquin and Phoenix. And it looks like he's unleashed. Yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> I mean, I saw Batman vs. Superman in 70mm at that theater. And, you know, the Joker. <sighs> I bet it looked great to see those digital images on, <laughs> on beautiful film. And speaking of digital images... Uh, Martin Scorsese was in the news this week for another reason. Uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> stars of the Joker as well, mm. um, Martin Scorsese's new film. But like you mentioned, he was also in the news. What was it? I didn't follow it. Uh, uh, was he in the news for something? You didn't see that Twitter was... thing where people were like, ah, Martin Scorsese's old news. He just makes movies about gangsters and oh. they were dragging like his editor as well. I feel like, I don't think that had anything, had anything to do with anything he did. It's just mm. like every six weeks, you know, the Scorsese-Tarantino debates right. flare up. That's what it because was. It was Tarantino-connected. Um, they're they are emblematic of like dude bro dorm mm -hmm. room filmmakers. Yeah. Um, and then you're like, wait, but what about Scorsese and the Age of Innocence or Kunda and yeah. all the other stuff he made? And then I go, well, I don't need to reply to that. And I just push it away. Yeah. Just don't look. Just Mar Marty's, don't look. Marty's fine. Every time I mute a conversation, I go, 
<laughs> as I go and click, and it makes me feel great. And Martin Scorsese's new film, his um, years in the making, his Ishtar, if you will, yeah, <laughs> the uh, Irishman, two hundred million dollar budget because of all that de aging. We finally got to see. Some <laughs> Couldn't of, have done it with makeup. <laughs> we finally got to see some of the digital de aging. You know what? They couldn't do it with makeup because have you seen Robert De Niro lately? Oh yes, he looks I have. awful. Saw him in the trailer for the Joker. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see the real de aging because what you got was Robert De Niro. 15, 20 years ago, but according to people that read the script, there's a Robert De Niro like 25 years old. How Did he play that role? Why not just cast another actor? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm very eager to see it. I it, mean, we saw some of the footage of him de-aged in, mm-hmm. in the trailer and yeah, it's got a bit of that Uncanny Valley thing, but yeah. honestly, like it looks no worse than just any special effects movie out today. I mean, like, if they can get, like, you know, um, Sam Jackson de-aged yeah. for Captain Marvel, I'm sure they can get it. And Martin Scorsese has talked about how uncomfortable he is and how on the ball he is with this de-aging mm-hmm. tech. So that makes me really curious. And I mean, the trailer that came out, yeah, it looks like a Martin Scorsese film. And yeah, I think if this technology doesn't look quite perfect, I'll suspend my disbelief because... It's you, a Martin Scorsese movie. And you suspend your disbelief at, like, every movie everyone you know? like you see it and you go yes that is a cg effect okay you remember the scene in avengers endgame when mm. all the when all the female superheroes yes. come together none of them are in the same none room. of them in the same room it's like if you can suspend your disbelief for that you can suspend it for this and you know mark scorsese is a master of the cg effect because remember that clip that was going around of the wolf of wall street of how much of it was digital and oh, you yeah. just never knew yeah so like he's on the ball he's trying to do as well as he can. even like um his kids film hugo mm-hmm. tons of cg effects some of them you realize some of them you didn't didn't matter just suspend yeah. your goddamn disbelief and you know He's a great filmmaker. That's Love just him. my take. Yeah, what was the last bad Martin Scorsese film? I guess maybe, maybe The Aviator. Oh, I love The Aviator. I think the last one that I was unenthused about was Shutter Island. Shutter Island is flawed, although I liked it. I liked the kind of Val Luton quality Yeah, I think to that it. if I watched it again, the, the fact that I'm like, ah, oh, this is how it ends, that kind of disappointment will be gone. I think it could have benefited from maybe being just a little sleazier. Yes. <laughs> or maybe even a little bit shorter. Come yeah. on, it, you're inspired by Val Newton? Give us a 75-minute movie, Marty. <laughs> yeah, but I, I did like it. I think maybe Gangs of New York... Yeah, but it's such like a it's like an ambitious bondoggle that yeah uh, yeah it's got a lot of good stuff. You know what? We didn't even talk about what our Patreon episodes. Speaking of ambitious oh. bondoggles, Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. That's right, the f- famous sophomore slump film. But is it in fact a masterpiece? Um, you're gonna have to listen to us to find out. I mean, speaking of love it or hate it, did we love it? Did we hate it? Was it somewhere in between? <laughs> yeah, probably that in between. Probably in between, part. yeah. And make sure to bone up on all your prequel graphic novels to get the whole story. And if people don't remember Southland Tales, The Rock, um, the shit bandit himself, Sean William Scott. <laughs> <laughs> cop out, cop out. <laughs> Amy Poehler, uh, John Lovitz, Christopher Lambert, they're all in this film. Uh, elderly Kevin Smith is in it. <laughs> elderly Kevin Smith. Because he time traveled. So uh, listen to that episode on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Five dollars a month to become a subscriber. And The Irishman, getting back to it. I'm excited. I'll watch it. Oh, my God. I mean, of course. Will you see it in theaters or will you watch it on Netflix? Because we have the option because we live in Toronto. Yeah, if if we get it in a theater here, I'll go see it. I mean, we have to get it in the theater. The Lightbox has played every Netflix film, Triple Frontier, Roma, everything. Yeah, if they don't get this one. Oh, man.